Welcome to Uncommon Ground, Dusty Keen. I'm Dusty Keen, and uh, a lot of the interviews that we do on on, uh, on the show um, are are with people who are living their dream, are with innovators, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, artists of all kind, uh, and people who make a real impact in other people's lives. And today, uh, we are really, I'm so fortunate to, to do this interview. He's a former colleague of mine um, and a good friend of mine. He's a father. Uh, he is an author. He is uh, many, many things. I am really, really privileged to be here today with uh, the one and only Mr. Kevin Campbell, the uh, founder and creator of Family Finding. And uh, so we're going to bring him on. And uh, welcome, Kevin. Hey, um, you know, I, I kind of did a little, a little intro of you beforehand, but I was, you know, basically on the, on this show, man, we, we, um, it's really like people that I know and love and that, uh, you know, that are out there and either doing what they love to do and, and doing their dream or people who are making like just a, a huge impact on other people. And, um, you know, I don't know anyone, uh, that makes more of an impact on people than you and, you know, not just people, but, um, like the most vulnerable people, you know, our, our foster youth and, and, uh, and, you know, people listening may not even know what our system is and, and what, you know, some of the, 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 the issues and, um, or solutions are to, you know, what these kids are facing. Um, so I guess, you know, just kind of running through like maybe how we met and how you got into, uh, creating what you do, uh, and, and how that sort of evolved and then like, you know, where, where it is now. And then maybe, you know, like covering some, some, the, the data that you're excited about that you see coming through that sort of proves, um, you know, what's happening and, and the lives that it's changing. Sure. Sounds good. Yeah. How much time? Um, you have all the time you need, man. Oh, okay. All right. Those of you who don't know, can't see Kevin. He's stunningly handsome. He's about six five, and right. uh, <laughs> no, but uh, this man has been on. I mean, you know, sixty minutes. What twice, right, Kevin? Yeah, twice. Yeah. I don't know anyone that's been on twice. <laughs> you know, you're good when you've been on sixty minutes two times. Um, Probably try. <laughs> but uh, that's just a testament to the work that you do, and um, and you know, let's dive into that, man, and talk about you know. Uh, how you've been and what's been going on and, and uh, where family finding is and how it started. Okay. So do you want me to just, just talk or do you want yeah, me yeah, to respond? Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, you know, talk about like how, you know, what really brought you to the moment of, of, of beginning family finding and creating it and um, a little bit about, you know, your history as if, you know, some of our, our listeners won't know anything about this space or, or really uh, right. maybe what's even, you know, the reality of, 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 of what's happening in, in this system. So uh, any way that you can, that you feel, you know, would sort of educate them on, on that and, uh, and, and you're part of in that, you know. Sure. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I'm an old man, so it's an old story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, you know, just sort of setting the stage, I, I first of all, I think uh, my beginning place is like everyone's beginning place in this, you know, who may be listening, is that we, I certainly didn't know anything about, um, in detail about the, the child welfare system or foster care system. I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, have an intention to work in this space. I was, I went to school to be a, a you know, I went to a fine arts school. I wanted to be a painter. I was a set designer in the theater. Um, and um, during the summer months, I was 
you know, trying to make some money um, and ended up doing some work teaching art classes to kids uh, and their parents and, uh, and uh, which I really liked. And um, when I went, when I moved from the school I was going into, which was near where I grew up in uh, Southwestern Washington, people wouldn't know where that is, but you might know Mount St. Helens, which I, practically lived next door to and is a volcano that erupted when I was a kid and destroyed our neighborhood. Uh, but I, I was, I went to a local school there and then I came to, went to Seattle to go to school um, after that. And, and I needed a job and I, I, um, you know, I remembered working with those kids in the parks department and I thought, well, I'll, I'll, um, you know, that's something I could, I could probably quickly find a job doing is, you know, doing some kind of social service work. And so it was really, I got drawn into social services by just working during the summer months um, while I was going to school to be an artist. And, uh, and I, I found the work with older adults at the end of their lives. Initially, my first work was with people who were at the end of their lives um, to be compelling work. Um, and then but the end of every story was known with everyone I worked with. Everyone died. Some in my office while I talked to them or at their bedside. And, uh, and so I, I, you know, within four or five years of doing that kind of work, I, I thought, I thought about those kids in those art classes. And I thought, well, I, I really am compelled by this, um, by this, concept that in this great country that there are people who who find suffering in their lives and I and and I'm, I'm a, you know I felt very affected by that and there's you know there's a part of that story which is about injustice and um, which really caught, caught my imagination and so I made a transition in the mid the mid 1980s from working with those older adults to wanting to work with kids again and I um, got a job overnight awake in, in this group facility for, you know, basically urban kids who were seen to be so troubled that they should be sent to a, a rural community um, to not run away. And so I was in this little crisis shelter where they sent these urban kids from Seattle, mostly black kids to live in this, on this horse ranch. And, uh, and uh, I, my, my first job was just to, stay awake all night while they hopefully slept and keep them out of each other's beds <laughs> and, uh, or from doing other dumb stuff. And, uh, anyway, the, the, it does take you long working around these kids before you begin to, um, certainly one, you know, care a great deal about them because they, you know, like all kids, they're just these extraordinarily developing people who really need adults to make big investments in them. Um, but the, um, the, um, other thing is you, you, be, you have to interact with the system. And so these, what my experience was is a system that wouldn't call you back. You know, they, you could call at the, you know, you could call and leave messages for caseworkers who would never call you back. Right. Um, you, you could never get information that really helped you know who this kid was or where they came from. You just got your instructions on what you were asked to do, but you were largely left out of whatever else was going on in their lives. And so you really have a very quick and, and, and very personal connection to um, not only what young people are experiencing, but what you begin to experience because as their caregiver, you're 
you're now in it with them. And um, while I was doing that job, I got recruited to be a foster parent. I got, um, became a licensed foster parent. I had nine of these at one point for a brief time. I had nine of these teenagers and I was their legal parent. At least they were in my care. And that even becomes more personal, you know, becomes even more personal. And, um, and again, no one calls you back and um, problems don't get attention. And of course the people, when you do talk to them, want you to know how busy they are and how, um, how they're struggling themselves in their, within that system. So I, I got a, a taste of it and um, probably for the, you know, admitting here being, being a fairly slow learner for the first 15 years or so, um, the first 15 years, you, you know, what I tried to do was do that job of operating these programs for these kids Make it as, bigger. Um, as well as I could think to do it. And, um, and I, and ultimately I came to a, um, if I could just jump, you know, move this along, I really just came to a, a personal viewpoint that I had no interest in spending the rest of my life um, being powerless in the face of a system, you know, having been trained as a painter and a set designer, um, I, and, and quite frankly, having, you know, always viewed, I've always viewed myself more as a painter than anything else. You, you know, painting for me is always about solving problems. You know, it's, it, it's not only casting a vision, but it's, it's, you know, how do you take that thing you imagine whether, and I could imagine this could apply to making movies or making music or writing, but you know, you cast a vision and you know what that thing is that you want. And then, then the challenge of the making of it is, 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 is solving one problem as after the next. And I, that's just sort of how I'm wired. And uh, I, I just, if I were going to continue to work in this, brokenness um what i knew is i had to do it in the way that i was wired which you know it's like you, you work through the problems which also means when you're the painter or the director or the you know whatever whatever creative role you're in you you're the master of your own universe in that way and you 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 know it your your creation doesn't happen unless you unless you you know, you're able to accept that, 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 you know, you, it's on you. It's so in other words, right. <clears throat> you don't right. allow yourself to be stopped by a system, right? You don't, right. Systems don't exist for creators. You, you're the system. Right. Uh, and um, so I started building, um, uh, working in that way. I, I was able to transform the organization I worked for and we became the largest um, system provider in the government of Washington state um, by working in that particular way and um, still wasn't good enough. And I got recruited to a much larger organization. In fact, the largest um, nonprofit in America, which is Catholic Charities USA and, and, and specifically through the local Catholic Archdiocese here in Seattle. And that was a great opportunity. They were bigger. The scale of it was much more significant. Um, and so, and they did work I liked and admired. And, and I got to work with a couple of people there that I really wanted to learn from. And they were great um, in terms of teaching me lots of stuff. 
And um, while I was working with them, I landed on on this research idea, pr practice and research idea that became later known as family finding. And we began in about 1999. I began in 1999 sort of applying those questions um, and that research. And then um, by, um, by 2008, what I had done had actually gotten a lot of attention. As you mentioned, I was um, in all the uh, much of the large uh, much of the large media at the time in the country, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Time Magazine uh, used to be an important television show. Um, 60 Minutes um, had gotten you know had heard about my work and had done stories on it, and then. In 2008, what I had originally worked on, or at least a part of it, became um, a part of a bill in the Congress and was passed unanimously in both houses and was signed into law by President Bush in October of, of uh, 2008, I think, and 2007, eight, yeah, eight, I guess it would have been eight. Um, and uh, uh, one of the last things that he did before the election uh, that brought Obama into office, I think. Anyway, um, that whole sort of vague story um, led to me um, continuing research in the United States, then Canada. Um, in the last few years, four or five years, I've had the opportunity to spend some time with people from about 16 Western democracies and with, and with and, and some wonderful people in Cambodia exploring these ideas and uh, and that um, and all and all of this learning you know kind of is really crystallized for me that that we you know for some reason I in fact I was writing my uh, one of my social media platforms this morning you know the, just sort of as a question I was asking how how did we ever uh, operate or, con or and, and continue to operate a system that um, did not focus on on the early on early prevention uh, of of kids being maltreated and placed into government care and um, and and secondarily why why do we continue to operate a system that doesn't invest meaningfully in strengthening the well-being of American families who have kids at home you know, why would we ever, why did we ever invent such a system? And, and actually, I know the answer to that question. The answer is actually very clear. It's well established. We, we didn't um, invent it at all. It came to us at the founding of this country from the British. Um, it was really very intentionally part of, 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 of what was known at the time as colonization, the, the efforts by your particularly European countries to expand their nation states and their power and 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 what that required was to create governance methodologies that allowed allowed people in power to hold that power and 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 by definition it meant that there were going to be some groups of people who were going to be a threat to the state and in, in, in those cases it could be American Indians what became known as American Indians or it could be Af people from African countries and tribes or from or Australian Aboriginals in Australia, um, you know, we, the, these colonizing structures are real. They have real history, and they were baked in to the founding of this nation and became baked into 
to our constitution and into our evolved laws and um, they aren't they don't have to do with what's re really good for kids or what's really good for people it has to do with what's good for holding power in a particular governance strategy and and um, what I um, and and if, and the truth is this thing that I was struggling with from my first day working in that group home of caseworkers not calling us back um, because they had no time to do it is not about caseworkers not calling you back because they don't have any time. It's about a historical structure that continues to persist and is about power. And ultimately that power is also about money. And, um, and, and the truth is that, um, you know, we're coming to a point in the, in our country and in the world where, um, while we still operate that way, it doesn't work well and we're all suffering from it. And so my little bit about that issue with the, of, of our democracy is today in my work is about how do we invent a new story? Again, going back to being an artist, um, I, I, and I look to people in, in, the, in the, you know, the, I happen to think that there have been some extremely wise people on this planet well before I ever existed or even this nation existed who've said as much. We can look back to to Rumi, a fourth century mystic who, Sufi mystic who said, you know, create a new language, create a new world. We can look at um, Judaism and, um, the, you know, in, in Judaism, one of the major teachings is, you know, um, words create worlds. Um, in other words, I think the that what I've come to believe is that that we need to invent a new story um, about about where we go from here. And what I've been doing over the last five or six, seven years is really focusing on that idea. How do we invent a new narrative? How do we tell new stories? Um, I'm I'm doing some planning with the group about a docu uh, docudrama series, uh, or no, it's not docudrama, docu. Basically, it's a documentary series for HBO um, that that I'm helping do some planning around with um, some major folks in Hollywood. And the re the whole interest I have in it is simply I said to them, "Look, I what I'm looking for are the best storytellers in the world because we need the best storytellers in the world to help us invent a new a new story of this that actually reaches people." Um, the story I'm working on right now is that is we uh, the truth is that nobody mo it's going to be hard to find people who don't think that this child welfare system or policing or other structures that we've used to manage the problems of poor people um are not working i, I don't think you have to really in you know invent that story because i think people generally agree even if they're comfortable with where they're at in it um, what I'm interested in is how do you tell a whole new story that, that reaches people differently? So the history going back to the 60s, certainly in the, in, the, in the civil rights movement was, you know, to tell the story of injustice, you know, through that, through the lens of justice, to tell it through the lens of rights, um, you know, uh, et cetera. I, everyone knows these narratives. We, we've all grown up with them. And what I would point out is why we all know them we may not even disagree with them, we still live with them. 
it hasn't, you know, it's not enough. And so the focus that I've been taking is on trying to invent a new story that isn't really a new story, but a much more evident story. And that is the story of these experiences through the lens of health. How, how, how you know, what I'm, I've learned a lot about and been working on is how, as a result of this, you know, 30 years of revolutionary science in the biological science, neuroscience and genomics, how does, how do humans really work? And what's the difference between a person who does really well in their life and a person who does not. And, and, there are, and that's not to say that, that the quality of justice doesn't matter um, or that people's rights don't matter. It's just trying to find a new way to tell that story and say, well, you, know, you, might, you might have learned to accept that there are you know, people who will live with less privilege than you, uh, but let's just reflect on that story from the standpoint of what that means in terms of your health and what that means in terms of the years you've got on this planet and not just what happens to you, but how do you transmit that to the people who are around you? And so, so one thing I've done in the last couple of years since I've become the senior consultant for one of the largest health companies in America, which is um, CVS Aetna. Um, uh, CVS, people will know CVS Pharmacies and they'll probably know Aetna Health Insurance. They did a merger a few years ago and became one of the largest health companies in the country. And they... They reached out to me and asked me to give, you know, ultimately they asked me to join as a consultant and, and help them reimagine their approach as a health insurance company and a health partner in the country to, to this particular population of people, which are kids in foster care and adoption and other things. And so, and they did that because they had seen my, my social media work around the health science and genomic science. And, so they asked me to do that. I wrote a book for them about two years ago. And the intention, our shared intention, was to bring a major disruption um, to the traditions in the United States around these systems and, uh, and, to, and to combat that disruption through the lens of health and healthcare rather than through justice or rather through rights. Um, my argument being that if you don't, it doesn't, you know, the quality of justice matters very little if you don't have the health to enjoy it. You know, if you're too sick to care, <laughs> yeah. it's not gonna matter a hell of a lot. And, right. and you know, um, so let me tie it all together. I've been rambling, but no, no. so if we're talking specifically about the child protection system, what I would argue is uh, what, what it, you know, it's proverbially what that is, is a canary in the coal mine. It's, it's not that it's unimportant that children be safeguarded from harm or death by having adults in their lives who do terrible things to them. It, it's critically important. But, but that, that, the fact that we have a system that's required to do that points at something much bigger and deeper than, than the fact, you know, that kids get hurt. It's the fact that we have adults in this country that think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do to harm a kid or hurt or kill a kid in the face of what they're facing in their lives. You know, there's, it, 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 it's as the public health people would talk about it, that's too far downstream. You, you sort of missed your moment. If right. you're, if we're, if we're making, if we're making hundreds of thousands of adults so sick that we have hundreds of thousands of kids in care and millions of kids adopted, we've got a bigger problem. Um, and, and this can't 
be a narrative than simply about kids as compelling as they are. It has to be about what the heck's going on in this country that we've made people so sick and how do people get sick and 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 what do I mean by sick and sick can be a lot of things but but if I could just um, brand new research right just in the last um, three months out of the UK oh, wow. to make that point about um, this is um, two studies from King's College and University College London. Um, there are two parts. The first is to look at anyone who spent time in foster institutional care in the UK, which is the four countries, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. Um, and to look at um, who was in care in, the, in those four countries between two, 1971 and the year 2011. And then once you know who they are, and there are a lot of them, they have a very, you know, relative to their size, a big system as we do. Um, the next question was what happened to these people? And so they did something that makes a lot of sense. They went to the census data because you could use the census data every 10 years just to kind of follow these people along, right? If they were in the census, you would know things about them, including you'd know if they were living or dead. And so the first question was how many of the people who were in care um, between 1971 and 2011 were dead. And that turned out to be nearly half a million people, wow. which is an extraordinarily high number of people when there are only about wow. 70,000 kids in care at any given year in, in those four countries. So the first thing we learned is mm. that if you spend any time in foster or institutional care as a kid in the UK between those years, your likelihood of being dead was 70% greater than if you didn't. So you were seven times more likely to die prematurely if you spent any time in foster residential care. That's, that's pretty profound, but I have to say, having studied the genomics and the biological science and the neurobiology, that actually is not a surprise. We would have expected to see higher mortality rates, but, we, but it, what is surprising is not that they're dead, What's surprising is how they died. We would have guessed that they would have died of cancer, died of heart disease, or uh, complicated um, um, immune conditions that we know are associated with early life, you know, maltreatment. We would have expected this, you know, diabetes. Lots of things can kill people early that are associated with chronic disease, and we know this is a population that's extremely prone to chronic disease. What was shocking was they didn't live long enough to die of those things. They died of unnatural causes. They died of poisoning. They died of accidents. They died of suicide and they died of murder. Um, suicide not being the largest number actually, probably the smaller of the group, still still overrepresented four times, but. But they died of what we in the opiate crisis in the United States, the, the, the crisis we've been facing about heroin and um, fentanyl and carfentanyl addiction yeah, over the last decade. Right, now, yeah. right, and it continues to. But what is that? And by the way, we, there, there are two countries in the world with an explosion in those deaths, the UK and us. And it reminds you how closely related we are to each other, society, you know, socially and culturally. Where, where it came from, where, where even the system itself would come. Wow. Wow. There's no surprise. You, you really cannot. You know, you have to think about the exist. This country has existed for about 237 years since, since the uh, Declaration of Independence. Um, 
you have to remember that's only that's if if we know that human beings let, let's assume that's about three full lifetimes um that this country's existed that's not very long so it's probably not a surprise that we are so so we parallel them so closely in so many ways including the fact that we both have these incredible opiate addiction crises going on um but I bring that up to make a point, which is there's a language that we use. I work a lot in West Virginia right now where the Aetna became the healthcare system for, the, uh, for all of the kids involved with the care system in West Virginia last year or early this year and beginning next year in Kentucky. And, uh, and both of those happen to be hot, you know, kind of huge part of the opiate crisis. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Not, not coincidental, by the way. Um, but here's what we say, what the West Virginians have called the opiate crisis and the, and the incredible amount of deaths associated with it. They call these deaths, deaths of despair. And that is exactly what we see in the English study of the child welfare system, not deaths from chronic conditions we know would have happened, but they die well before that from deaths of despair. Um, we already have data to show that our data in the US doesn't look really look different from that. By the way, interestingly, it's exactly the same as Sweden. Sweden's death rate from deaths of despair with this population are also about the same. Um, wow, that's all the what same. I'm, wow, good. Yeah, right, so that's sweet. Keep in mind, you know, in, in many other ways, Sweden, you know, it's been, you, you know, you know this, um, Dustin, you know the, a big important idea in American history is the idea of living the American dream, right? You got, you got a house, you got two cars in the driveway, provide for your kids the American dreams. But today we know that, if you, that the likelihood of living the American dream in the world, um, that the United States ranks, ranks 20th. So there, we're, we're number 20 in the world for actually living the American dream. It's been said if you actually want to live the American dream, what you ought to do is move to Copenhagen's Denmark. Right. Um, it's like the highest quality of life in the world. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so Sweden's not far. Sweden's high up on the list too. So it is interesting. Uh, I pointed out it is interesting that Sweden's death rate for this population is the same as, as ours and the same as England's because it points at something. And what it points at is that um, it points that it's, it will never, we will never have a just system that produces what Americans really want from it as long as we continue to think about foster care and adoption and institutional placements of children from poor families and minority families as a solution. Because quite frankly, that is um, not only clearly does it, is, is it not true because, by the way, even the living, which was the second part of the study, those who didn't die by by age 50, 85% of them were so sick they couldn't work anymore. Um, it, it wasn't just about the people who died in those studies. It was that, that the experience just made you so chronically sick so early that, that for most people, 85% of them, that there was this idea of justice really didn't matter very much because you were too sick to enjoy it. You know, and, and so what I'm trying to do is I'm doing with you now in a very, very scattered way, but is we need a new story and we need that story to stand in evidence. And that evidence is not why we hate poor people or why this country 
you know, is so unjust towards African Americans or Indians or immigrants. It's um, those. That's not the story. The story is whatever. Whatever happens, um, um, it's going to play out in your health. And here's the here's the principle: the your biography is your biology. That's what you learn in the science. That what right. how you live your life becomes reflected in your health and your health outcomes and. And even down these, to like your thoughts, you know, and you, you think about some of the things that the these these children are going through, some of the things that, um, you know, that they are made to think about and put into situations that uh, I just couldn't imagine. I mean, you know, I could go on and on about so many of the interviews I, I had with uh, some of the, the children of the system, but, um, you know, thinking about where, where is my sister, where are these things? And then you, they just groove these thoughts into their mind of, you know, are they loved or are they all these things that would produce uh, real, real outcomes of their health. And then on top oh, right. of that, so, so the opiates, the drugs that they put in themselves to, you know, to, to, to treat those thoughts or to treat their, their feeling, their mood, which is, you know, uh, the, it, it might be the wrong way to do it, but you know, that on top of that, I'm sure just, you know, uh, is, is why we're seeing that. Well, right. I mean, you heard those stories from your chronicles. The yeah, that, and you heard in at a high level, with some exceptions, I'm sure, it was the same narrative every time, even though it was a different kid sitting in the chair. Right. You know. Yeah. For example, as I remember, the thing I remember about your chronicles that always stood out to me, because one of your questions was, you know was 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 kind of a wishes question you know if you right if you had one wish for your life and you couldn't wish for more wishes what would it be and it was so interesting time after time that the answer these kids would give you is they'd wish for something they could give to someone else right they were completely they, selfless uh, yeah. the, the generosity of this group was just an extraordinary thing and so i would just point by the way as one example about why is this so wrong why why is this intolerable and it's because the very people we're doing this to in terms of policy and practice don't see themselves chronically sick or dead by the time they're 50. They see themselves making their life work so that they could take what they did with their life and give it to someone who needed more to them. I mean, who else, who else do you really want in your society than people that care about who lives next door to them? And who works with them and you know have that generous spirit and this is a group of people having in our experience i think that that you and i saw had had this extraordinary generous experience from the early days of their lives but the point i'm making as we tell a new story which is the story of their health and the story of their mental health is that that incredible generosity and the the spirit of which these young people would confront this um is under becomes undermined by the fact that that their bodies can only tolerate and fight back so long before before it costs them and that if i could say something about the science in a simple way it's maybe useful to people it won't be surprising because it really does make a lot of common sense when you think on it is you know if you want to think in the simplest terms about how or how these um kids maybe think you gotta remember they're going to be brought to adversity Correct. probably before they're even born, right? During, at the time of conception, more likely than not, a lot of them are going to yeah. be conceived in relationships that are deeply in struggle um, by people who themselves, I often say the, to my colleagues who love kids so much, it's, well, the kids you say you love so much 
their parents were once those kids. Right. And unwell. Right. And, you know, the, it, a lot of them at the and, time. And, 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 and now you feel like it's okay to persecute them and love their children. It doesn't make sense. It's, we're going to have to love them both. Very right? good point, man. Wow. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. It, what is that, right? What is that? You know, right. at, I'd love to ask you, at what age do they switch over from being someone that you say you dedicated your life to, to who you say you've dedicated your life against? Here's the product of what you did to them. Here's the result. Well, and now it's, now, it's now, a continuing generational thing. Yeah. Holy cow, that's right, man. Which, really... but, but to your point, I would just say that's, that's, the, that's the change that we're looking for is what if, what if these people in this field who would tell you they dedicated their lives to do this are serious about that, that they really did dedicate their lives to this, then can we change a system by helping them change their own story? You know. Would, I, I know that you and I both agree that that yeah. answer is yes. Yeah, right. That again, I it, it's and, about. And story. if the answer is yes, then you know uh, the, the answer is yes. It's, well, when do we want to do that? When, at what point do we want to begin to change these lives? What is the right time to do that? Um, and 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 that would well, be now. You, I would think you know. I, I, um, well, I would think. I mean, look, that's why the health data is so important. This UK study. And I can tell you, this happens. I do big events around the world. Um, yeah. A small event would be 100 people. A really big event would be 600 and plus people. I've only done a few of those really big ones. Um, and I ask people to do direct practice work, and I coach them over a few days. Um, and what happens in that group is you can feel it over, if you're, if you're with them physically at least, you can feel the the grief in the room just grow larger and larger yes. over those four days because people are forced to confront the story of their own lives. You know, I came here to make a difference in the lives of people. And now the, this thing called research teaches me that the thing I've been doing did make a difference, but it wasn't the one I was hoping for, you know, yeah. <laughs> where I thought I was saving lives. I realized I shortened them. Wow. Um, that's a, that's a really hard thing to live with. But the truth is that, um, you know, I like to, when they, when that comes up, there's all, you can always feel the moment when, when you have to respond to that. What I do is I respond with a Jennifer Michael Hecht quote from her book, Stay, the History of Suicide. When she said, in her book, she said, um, respect your future self who will know what you do not know. Of course, she's speaking to people who, who act on the impulse to die and she's saying to them, stay, because you need to respect your future self who will know what you do not know right now. And that thing oh, you do yeah. not know right now is that you'll regret losing out on the opportunity to benefit from your own wisdom in the future. You know, you'll get through this. So I'm Well, the people that you can impact by, by the by just the sheer uh, uh, experience you'll have of staying, you know, and right, maybe, you stay. maybe the you others stay. that you can, you can help also, you know, which, um, what, what, and you're also respecting yourself and your ability to recognize that something should be true about all of us, that any one of us can reflect on our lives today and imagine the moments and, and, and decisions that we would make that would be different today where we confronted with that same challenge. 
and her really her point clearly being that if you're fortunate as a human being you will always be in a position of learning something new and it will always bring wisdom to you that will make your life better and the life of people around you better and that that should be your journey that should be what yeah. it's about right it's it's just stay at it and i'm saying to the people working in this field right now it and this is really plain talking but we 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 killed far more people than we ever saved whether we knew it or not and um meaning we 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 directly contributed to shortening their lifespans um even though we didn't know we were doing that but we do know we know but we do know now that we were doing that right right and 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 the what and my question for you is do not tell me about your regret about the past tell me about what you're going to change about the future because it's the only thing you can influence um you know think about medicine um you know a hundred a hundred years ago they were doing 120 years ago they were doing on surgeries on people without anesthesia because they didn't have it um you know they were they were bleeding people because they thought it was the cause of infection they didn't bleed people because they were trying to hurt them they they bled them because they were trying to heal them but they were wrong and medicine had to confront the fact when they discovered these um you know discovered germs and discovered um viruses that they got it wrong uh, and they did, and they and today we they save countless lives. We we in this system need to be as courageous about our own learning and our own willingness to change as, as any doctor has ever been or any researcher. Right? We, we 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 wherever we're at in our lives, we need to remember that that the 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 promise of life is growth and change, and and we need this system to 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 confront that and that isn't just about a system changing it's about people changing and so but let me tell you quickly right. just because i think it'll be useful to your audience about about a way to think about this health impact that's not just about child welfare it's also about you um three principles one is what is predictable is preventable right if you can predict right. that you might be stressed out right now in this pandemic more socially isolated than you want to be and that you notice that as you've been going through this that what you've been putting in your mouth and eating every day may not be as good for you as it might have been before um you you can predict that if you stay at it you're going to face consequences you're you're going to end up with higher blood pressure you're going to end up you know tipping from pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes, you know that. And so very simply, we need to be constantly remind ourselves and about the people we love that what we what we can predict, we can prevent. If I, uh, I'm, by the way, there's a balancing act here. Maybe my mental health is better right now because I'm cooking more at home and making more desserts than I ever did. And maybe that actually is working right now for me and my family. I don't think that is the worst decision you ever made. Your mental health really matters. But you gotta recognize at some point that you're gonna to begin to make an adjustment because you know you can't keep that up for too long before you're gonna end up facing consequences that you don't wanna face. What is predictable is preventable. The second one is that our bodies and our brains want to heal. That 
most of the healing that you will experience in your life comes from your brain and body, not from doctors and not from medicine. Um, in other words, we know that about in your lifespan, that about that that in terms of your overall health and well-being, our American health system is going to shape about 20% about what happens to you. And the other 80% is going to be the consequence of how you lived. So it points at something, which is don't look to medicine and psychiatry as the thing that'll save your life unless you've got a condition that can only be saved by those things. Um, you really need to pay attention to the fact that you and your family and your people that care about you have a great deal more influence over what happens to your health than systems do or even our healthcare system does. So we need to remind people you're really in charge 80% of the time and don't forget it. And then yeah. finally, as I, I said earlier, your biography is your biology. It isn't about getting it perfectly right. It isn't about living a life without struggle. It is not living a life without stress at all. That's not the goal. The goal is to find some balance, some balance between making sure not that, I mean, if you can manage negative things in your life, you should do it. But what you really ought to pay attention to and the thing that will really make you sick is not the negative things in your life. It's the absence of good things in your life that will make you sick. It's the balancing between that's the good, 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 good thoughts as well. You know, I mean, that's, that's, hey, that's yeah, people don't really so what fully do you spend get that. your time. That's right. So how do, who do you spend your time with? What do you spend your time thinking about? or at least some time thinking about and become intentional about choosing how you're going to spend your time, you know, right. Um, look, getting back to being, a, a, you know, being people who are creative, whether you do that with music or with spoken word or written words or a camera, um, or, you know, what it might, but though, you know, the time you invest in doing those things is, is part of that that balancing act right and you know it's also you know so practical yeah. like in practice you know yeah. to begin to practice that is so huge even if, so if you want to learn to play guitar right there's really no way yeah. around being able to play the guitar to where you can play what you feel takes a long time and you have to repetitiously go through the hurting of the fingers and the push through the barriers that are hard to to be able to do it and, and even love that process but that's the same thing of you know uh training yourself to to start to think certain ways and create positive thoughts and be a aware of how those thoughts make you feel um and and that is uh yep. i think a key to a huge mental health but also you know even when you are really healthy it just it, it's super it, like it supercharges your creativity you know absolutely and i would just expand on the word feel that you just used not just your intellectual thought but pay attention to how it feels in your body yeah you know that that is it you what what we've got is a society and we do this to kids in care to their detriment and their parents is this neck up psychological disconnected self way of doing this what i think people who play the guitar and stick with it are drawn to is not just how they think about the guitar but how it feels in their body to just quiet yourself and Right. And, and, and go through the tradition of practicing or just and my group, my dad made makes violins. He, I think the nerd, the name for this is called a Luther. He makes violins, made other instruments, string instruments. 
Um, so they were around the house when we were growing up, just sitting everywhere. And the tradition in our house, when you sat down and you didn't have anything else to do, was just pick one up yeah. and yeah. and just sit there and try to pick out a couple of notes. Um, and and it's awesome. just how as how you live, right? You just pick them up and but or take a walk or love your dog um, or I guess if you like cats, if that's possible. You could pet your cat. <laughs> um, you know. you know, it's really, it, it, you're absolutely right. And, you know, for me, the yeah. whole creative process coming together always, I'm constantly working on, on you know, continuing to be more and more creative. And um, just even through this pandemic, you know, uh, you and I know each other. We, you know, I, I've made movies and I've acted and whatever. And uh, yeah. so, but I finally recorded a song, you know, I did that with uh, Angie Perro, who's going to be on the show and he's won a couple of Grammys and um, is a really just a fantastic writer, but the process of being with him and doing that new thing um, and being in the studio with someone that was so good uh, and the ease of that. And, you, and then you surround yourself. It's really important, no matter what your environment is, how a little or a big, but to surround yourself with things that do make you feel good and make, and then provoke thought, um, you know, that you can see, and be around and feel and touch and do um and and i think that was a prime example of you know growing up in your house with your dad and having an instrument right there anytime well right and so to get back to the stuff i work on if i could use the story of my dad is what you know we need to acknowledge that um my dad was a career federal employee who was able to stably keep a house over our head provide for our basic needs, have the extra money around to buy the materials to make those instruments and leave them lying around that allowed me that, you know, allowed us that example of being able to pick up those instruments or whatever. The, the point is we, the majority of kids who get involved in the system don't come from families that have the same opportunity to do that, that my white, you know, lower middle-class family had. Right. Um, and that um, waiting for them to, to neglect their kids or hurt their kids and then putting them with some stranger who you're willing to pay enough to keep a roof over that kid's head mm. doesn't make any sense at all, does it? it, it no. It's, it, it, in, in fact, it, intentional or otherwise, what it is is a commodification of the children of the poor. You know, we, we know that wow. 80% of the kids who end up in this care system are there because of neglect, not because their parents abused them, but because they couldn't provide for their basic needs over time in a very, what could have been a very serious way. Um, and again, a lot of times it's a product of the same system that, that you're seeing this. That's, in. So it's right. generational. It's that's continuation. Right. Generational. Right. right. But what we would do is what we thought was a great solution was to take those kids and still do take those kids away from these people and then pay a lower middle-class family money to take that poor family's kid um, or group of kids. And, and by the way, it's not just paying them, it's paying the social workers, paying the judges, paying the therapists, paying the health people, the, you know, the fully loaded cost of that. You can, like you and I know, having worked with older teenagers in the system, and a lot of people probably wouldn't know this, but for the all-in cost, of one kid in that system in North Carolina for a year is the same of room and tuition, boarding and tuition at Harvard. Wow. 
You, you, you know, it take. does not surprise me though because you see all the people that are paid around this person uh, yes. effectively to, Add it up. to yeah, it's, it's un- it up. unbelievable. You know, you just, you hit on that. It just reminded me of one interview that I did that I've never able, been able to, to, to uh, forget. And this, this kid was 10 years old and he had just, uh, you know, they had just, CPS had just, uh, you know, brought him in and he was being, uh, going through processing and they were looking for a family for him, you know, um, and he, there, and he's just kind of flipping out, you know, in this interview a little bit. And it was, he was so honest and so authentic. And he was like, you know, I can't, I don't know what's going on. He's like, you know, they're driving me around saying, oh, isn't that a pretty house? Isn't that really pretty for hours in front of the house? He said, man, I'm worried about where my sister is. You know, I've been the one that takes care of my sister her whole life. Where is my sister? Why did they take my, my, you know, my siblings from me? And he's 10, you know, and I remember being, you know, with you and, and you know, First of all, working with you is like one of the most amazing chapters of my life, man, and, and eye-opening in so many ways. But discovering what this system really is, I hate to tell you, it was so just heart-wrenchingly disappointing. And, and, and we were uh, in the Senate one time, and I remember Senator Landry was there, and she was like at the head of the, you know, the budget allocation for foster care, which at the time I think was like $7 billion. And yeah. uh, she's watching some of these interviews and some of these things, and she's just it's just crying at the podium, you know, and vowing for change. And then, you know, yeah. within that group of people was that uh, uh, the superior court judge um from uh pennsylvania and and he said you know if you got all of the smartest people in the world together to come up with a system that was the worst possible uh system the most harmful system you could possibly come up with that's what we have as our system in america and how we treat our kids and and our most vulnerable people and that just blew you know it blew me away and then you added the fact that you know some of these interviews i did uh i would be interviewing you know a a kid in, in the third grade who just could barely get through the interview and then i find out you know like what is wrong with it? You know, this kid is totally doped up. You know, they have this kid on five different medications and I don't know how that would be even okay with any FDA treatment. I mean, there has to be consequences of mixing that many different medications, but, uh, medications, but you know, the, this kid was on it and you know, the foster parent was really concerned about, you know, uh, could you make sure that he really is aware that he needs to do his chores? And I was like, you know, if I was on this medica- medication, I might jump out the window, you know, I'm an adult. Yeah. I, I can't, you know, so it was just really shocking a lot of it. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I, again, part of the tuition, <laughs> that I, as I described it for Harvard <laughs> includes paying for those drugs, right? Um, yeah. and the supervision of those drugs. And by the way, wait, by the way, the FDA does not explicitly authorize those drugs. What the FDA has done is give permission to physicians to prescribe off-label combinations of drugs. In other wow. words, it's up to the discretion of the phys- physician to prescribe in the way they feel is appropriate within their training. And, and they can and they can use drugs that are off label and most psychotropic dr- drugs are not uh, not I'm not aware of any of the psychotropic drugs I, I could be wrong here but I'm not aware of any of them that have actually been approved for kids they're all prescribed off label um, you know and, 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 I don't know this Kevin but is it yeah. do you think that it's possible I don't know I'm you know I'm totally just throwing this out there but do you think that it's it's even possible that some of these uh, Physicians or people that, that are you know in place to prescribe this uh, these medications are incentivized by prescribing them. Well, we I, I would want to say that about any particular person, but I can tell you that um, that's not a matter of of opinion. That's a matter of settled law because we wow. have significant um, uh, 
findings in the federal courts against the pharmacology, pharma, you know, the pharmacy companies um, for intentionally um, basically bribing prescribers to give particular drugs to groups of people. So we know that. So we oh. we know on one drug, one one drug uh, that I can think of that was in the From Place to Place movie that the um, maker of that particular drug was fined uh, half a billion dollars for um, paying doctors to prescribe them to children when there was evidence that they would do harm. So we, wow. we know that it's wow. not an opinion. It's not a, it's not a, an unsettled question. We, we, we have lots of examples of, of settled uh, lawsuits on that. Um, it's amazing that, you know, that's even, that's even fathomable, but you, you know, you said something that was just so powerful. You said, you know, that, uh, what is it? The percentage of, of people that have, have been through this, that, that die of despair. 70%. And, uh, 70%. 70%. Actually, and so if you, that's not correct. They have a 70% increased likelihood of dying early than people who did not have these experiences. And when they do die, they die more likely from diseases of despair than, than well, these are technically known as unnatural causes. So if you looked it up in, on your smartphone, right. what an unnatural cause is, you would see it is a poisoning, which by the way means is code for overdose, um, mm -hmm. either a drug overdose or an alcohol overdose. And then again, accidents, murders, and then suicides. And, and the, the, you know, those are the broadly classification for something called unnatural causes. What it means is that we, these early experiences they had in their first families that were largely related to poverty and racism and, and the unequal experience of justice people have, then were made worse when they were removed from their families. And as you said, giving you one example, think about that little kid who was talking to you, who was saying, I don't care about that. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you, but I don't care about that pretty house you're trying to show me. Where the hell's my sister? Right. And, and the distress that goes with that, how many people listening to this have ever had someone you loved literally missing? And you felt like you could do nothing about it. How does that feel in your body? How long would you feel that way? And what you have to think about is it's not just a question of what that feels like. It's the wear and tear effect that it creates on our bodies. And so that gets to the thing I keep trying to say, which if you really want to simply understand this, is it's broadly what we call a wear and tear effect that you can, you know, the aging and how fast one ages is really to a great extent a a measure of how much wear and tear experience people have across their lifespan and so we know that that what these experiences do is they accelerate aging for these kids so they they we literally see what's called an acceleration in cellular aging and so while these kids may not even look like a, a, a really troubled kid in front of you, that might be the easier, you know, the kid, the foster kid who quote unquote is doing better, um, that may be so, but it doesn't mean that it's not coming at a cost to them. It doesn't mean that their aging hasn't been accelerated. And so the reason these lifespans are right. shortened ultimately is that, that, that there's an unrelenting pressure that comes in many forms um, 
and is not strongly balanced by those good experiences that I mentioned, because there are very few of them. And so damage, what it damage does- Damage has been done, right? Yeah. Well, it's like driving your car too fast, too hard for too long with no maintenance. What's going to happen? Yeah. Um, it's exact that the, 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 the chronic disease portion of this is exactly in, in many ways is like a mechanical analogy. It's like what happens to your car. It, you know, you could take five um, Priuses and, or 10 and drive them all really hard. And they probably all won't break the same way because each one was made a little bit differently and will have different vulnerabilities. Um, but they will break. And that's what's really going on with these kids is that we, we, even the ones who aren't the hardest kids who end up in the institutions are going to have an impact on the rate of cellular aging and that constant, you know, and that impacts us all, that, that impacts us all, whether we, whether we we recognize it or not. Right. So we, we literally know that there are some people who lived very fast, mean lives. And there are nice, privileged white men who live really slow. You know, if you think about Baltimore right now, actually Chicago is the best example of this right now. If you compare the lifespans of, Af- of, of, of oppressed African-American men in Chicago to the most affluent white men in Chicago, it's a 27 year difference in lifespan. Wow. The, so the average age of death of an African-American man in Chicago is about 49 years. And the average, or 49 to 50 year, 52 years, and the average death of a, of a privileged white guy in Chicago is about 82 years. So actually that's a little more. That's wow. one of the most extreme examples. The lowest um, expected lifespan in the country is actually on the Wind River reservation in Wyoming, which is a native tribe, and their expected lifespan there is 47 years, um, which is yeah, lower than, than living in Haiti. And then what that function of that is beyond being injustice and, and very plain evidence of it is, is what causes that is that, that incredible acceleration in cellular aging and all of the health problems that then develop in a variety of ways for the individual in that condition. What's that tell us? Well, if you wanted to change that right. outcome, you would, you would make the investment in, 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 first of all, you'd have to recognize that the people on the Wind River Reservation are actually people who have the capability of living a good long life. But in order to live that good long life, you need to, need to have access to the same basic things that every other person has. And that's not the system that we've got. And these kids in this system are the worst examples of that. Oh, yeah. that you know, I remember one time we, yeah. 
you've had you've had an impact in so many different ways in this system and uh with the people that you work with and including even people like me i think that anyone that gets around you and is fortunate enough to to be around you and and, and work with you is changed forever in a, in a great way and i remember one thing we did we went up to uh i think it was san francisco and we kind of snuck a film crew into this uh facility this lockdown facility um and we started interviewing the kids you know and um the 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 content of the interviews was just so damaging to that institution that I think uh, that was one of the reasons why they were shut down permanently. And well, uh, let me point out to, to what you said. Yes, it was. And let me be clear. They shut themselves down permanently. Right. The government didn't come in and have to close them. These were good people that when they, when oh. they could, when, when they saw what you filmed, and were confronted because you know these are people who before they saw what you film would have said i love that kid right he's I'd doing great well they might not say that <laughs> say, i love that kid and i think there are some who and would have mentioned who would say i would give my life for that kid if it would came down right to it and then they look at your film which only which really is just an opportunity to illustrate getting the person in the, and by the way i think that's the power of film the that how it for if you were going to attend to the film you got to shut up and you got to pay attention which means shut up and listen and watch and what they did is they listened and watched and and what your film did is it allowed those young people to really not only say what they needed to say but there was more than just the words it was they were saying much more than than just the words alone were conveying right yeah and the and the impact of the film you made was that the people who ran that place, despite the fact they were getting millions of dollars to do it, said, we're closing it. Um, by the way, they didn't just close that place. They were operating others and they closed them too. Wow. Now that's, so that, we, is, that is, that is, that is, you know, change. Yeah, yeah. And changing that story, like you, you know, we're talking about to begin yes. with, and like so, so you've had such a journey with the, the kind of evolution of how, um, your own efforts have changed from where you very beginnings. I remember when we first met, you know, uh, you were um, coming at sort of the tail end of working with the kids that were the most difficult, uh, who were yeah. about to age out of the system because that was really yeah. uh, the focus at that point. And then you kind of, uh, in, in our working together, had, had, uh, had moved into really um, making everyone aware of how the importance of working with the children when they, when they first come into the system. And, uh, and then now, you know, it, it sounds like you've really, um, this thing is really uh, kind of morphed in and changed uh, as you've learned and as uh, you get new data on, on different things into what it is now. And, and what, what would you say, cause you always, you know, the thing about identifying uh, a lot of the issues that you're able to do, you also have solutions uh, for these and um, they're practical solutions a lot of times and sometimes you know the things that you say is just like well duh why didn't you know why why oh wow I didn't, I didn't even think um, I think a lot of other people have those moments uh, when they get to hear you speak um, you know these days based on the the recent data um, and the things that you're finding what what in a perfect setup, you're in charge every you know and, and these things happen on, on your command um, how, how what do we do well, we're doing it. Um, and I'll go back to someone you mentioned. Um, you were describing Justice Bear from the Pennsylvania yes. Supreme Court. Right? Yes, Justice Bear. Yeah. And, 
So I'm still working with the justice and we are in our fourth year of a new project. So we took all the learning from our original 10 years of work together and, and really had to sit back and like, what did we learn? Like, what does that tell us? And what are the things that are still not working well, et cetera. And we started together a new initiative four years ago in Pennsylvania that we're um, rolling out. And we now have, um, and we may see some media coverage about this after the election. I'm working um, with the Marshall Project and some other per, um, major newspapers in the country on a series for next year after the election. And, um, and one of the stories is about what we're doing in Pennsylvania. And to cut right to it, we've in two, so we've got 14 counties in, this, in the project right now. Uh, um, we're working with them, sort of, you know, bringing them in systematically. We have 11 of them so far, uh, because we just started with the remaining um, three, have, have eliminated the use of fostering institutional care by 95%. Wow. Two of them, two of them, these are government agencies, two of them have reduced it by 99%. Um, and what we did was use this health story and the justice system um, to build a new, a new story. And, 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 and the next piece is, remember this health perspective, which was different from the history of bring of a rights-based approach or a, or a constitutional right. approach. Right. It was about right. human health, right. right? Which by the way is more measurable. Um, well, when you bring to child protection, which has always been about a system narrowly focused on safety, but when you bring to a system focused on safety, a new word, and that new word is healing, <sighs> It's transformational. Thank God so, there is. You know, it's interesting. It's like everything I find in life that that uh, that ends up doing harm or restricting rights of people or whatever it is is always done under the umbrella of safety. And this is not ever putting this together, but it's a, I think that's the a word that 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 uh, that trumps the word safety. You know, when you, when you oh, well, use look the at, word look healing. At, mm. Yeah. Look at look at North North Korea as an example of a culture built entirely around a single word of safety. What, right. what do we think we know about the conditions of the millions of people within those borders? What do we know about the impact over the last 70 years of when the partition between the North and the South was made? There were families cut in half by that who haven't seen each other in 70 years. There's an incredible story about Seoul, South Korea, if you ever get a chance to look at this. In that culture, they don't use nursing homes, right? As you grow older, you're, in, in many Asian cultures, elders are deeply regarded and respected and looked after by their children and grandchildren, right? Unlike here, we right. put them in nursing homes. They don't do that. And, uh, and when you die, you're honored as an ancestor. So what would happen when as we saw happen in a national, a natural experiment, which was the cessation of of of, of, bat, of conflict between the South and the North, and the partitioning right. of that country, and the splitting of families, is it left a lot of people in places like Seoul, whose extended families were in the North, who they haven't seen again in seventy years, right? So, 
what's happened is a consequence of that, which is that every week, every month in Seoul, their uncollected bodies of elders who die, whose family were never able to take care of them or come and collect their bodies because they were in the North. And so they've had to build these charities to go around and collect these, the remains of these people and then dispose of them appropriately because they don't have a family to do it anymore. That is all that we live with that, with this word safety in Northern Ireland. I, I did some studying in Northern Ireland around the troubles and I built some recent models we're using in family healing work based on, on the work in Northern Ireland between families where murders happen. And a wonderful poet there by the name of Padre Gotuma uh, who said this, and it gets to your point, one person's safety is another person's terror. And you think about the way that government has used the word safety or, or individuals, groups can use the word safety in very compelling ways that, that illustrate what's important to them, but ignore the consequences of, of their safe practices on other people. So yeah. part of my, my storytelling change was to hold two truths. There are really situations in child protection where we need to urgently respond including where we're preventing the the murder of kids that that that's real it really does happen not not very often but enough that it's a serious concern actually once would be enough right yeah, exactly. but we have to add a second truth right you got to hold a second truth and the truth is you you got to think beyond the immediate needs of safety in other words if if all you do is build a system to respond to the safety of, of people you've invented a new new set of problems by what do you do now and what the health information's allowed us to do was to recognize something about parents and grandparents and young people who've had these the impacts on their health and mental health of these kind of oppressive experiences is that it does have consequences and they're deep and they do and they can lead to as we've talked about very serious lifelong health and mental health problems but remember our principles that what is predictable is preventable. The brain and the body want to heal. Um, and that our biography is our biology. And what we know is it's never too late when you're working with human beings to change their life course trajectories by damping down those negative experiences and increasing the opportunity to invent positive experiences like picking up the guitar throughout the day and quieting yourself. Um, yes. So in other words, when we introduced the idea that, and this is a big change because you and I actually worked on this together, so you'll recognize this, but the, the chronicles that you, were, that you made and we were working with the other agency in the, in the state about were on this idea that what you need to do for kids who can't live with their parents is get them permanent parents, right? Through adoption, right. Guard, kinship. And, and by the way, you know, and, 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 and paycheck behind yeah. that as well. Um, right, right. But here's the thing, right? We were told to do that because the data that we were given said that if you don't do that, these kids get sick and they end up homeless as young adults, right? right. Which they do and we have seen. But we had new, a new study come out in December of last year from the University of Chicago, Chapin Hall, that went out on the streets to find out who actually is homeless, right? So we had this narrative about how you become homeless, but they wanted to know who actually is homeless. Is, right. 
and guess guess what? Forty percent of the actively homeless kids they interviewed didn't get there because they aged out of the foster care system without a parent. They got there because they left the foster parent to a parent. That permanency was no that put as many people in the homelessness as not having permanency did. And and what that pointed to was the body doesn't give a shit about your permanency. It, it, the body's going to do what it has to do. And if you put people through these kinds of experiences and, and then, and then finally at the end, you say, well, here's some shiny new adopted parents for you. You know, we're heroes, by the way, where's right. our $10,000 incentive payment. Right. Um, Guess what? And we didn't we did no work on like you know dealing with the issues of grief and loss no. or any of that stuff. But no. here, here you go. Here's a bow on them. On her. No. <laughs> yeah. So what you see is the best solution that we've had for 25 years in federal policy, which was getting moving people from bad people to good people, didn't change the life course outcomes. They look pretty much the same, hmm. and that comes back to that word healing. That what what the biography the biology of this tell, shows us is that you may not have any choice whether you like it or not. You may have to go into the dog's mouth and make an investment in healing the family you took that kid from and the kid. It may be the only way to give them the, a real chance at, at finding healing in their life. And, ha and, and ultimately what we talk about in my healthcare work today is we define a good outcome as living a good life. Not by my terms, but by your by terms. Yours, right. What do you say is a good life? So my first question to kids after we get them through the crisis in the moment is, and parents is tell me about living a good life. If you were in a position to live a good life, what would it be? What, what do you say is a good life for you? And by the way, there's a second question. What would you not want in your life? Yeah. What, what would you not want? Because to me, the- Important to identify the, that as well. The, free, yeah. the freedom of the whole point of this democracy, which is supposed to be freedom, and there's nothing more important to the idea of freedom than an individual deciding what a good life is and what it is not. And then the second part is holding the health to actually live those things. And to me, that's the starting point, right? The starting point is, about having the freedom to live a good life and the hell the hell to do it. And we should build systems that do those two things instead of continuing to spend money on a system that does neither. Great. Wow. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I, that's absolutely, man. And I, you know, Kevin, I just, I, I hope that I, I know that you're, you're, you're told plenty, I'm sure, but I, I hope that, you know, uh, the gratitude that so many of us have for you for getting up every day and doing this work and putting your whole heart and your whole energy and your whole effort into it, you know, being a husband, being a father, and then also, you know, going out there and the, the amount of miles that you have traveled and the amount of people um, from all walks of life and all nationalities and countries and, and, and just the ability to, 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 to do what you do, know what you know, and continue to grow with that. I just hope that you uh, are aware of the impact it has, man. And I hope you know how many, uh, how many people you, you have impacted. And I know a lot of times you'd like to take the focus completely off yourself. Um, 
and that's kind of the nature of the work that you do and why you do it. But um, I think it's important to recognize you as someone that, that uh, I think should be, um, should be, you know, held in, in, in esteem and, and, and listened to as far as, uh, as well that has great ideas for everyone uh, because of what you've learned in this life and what you've uh, been able to see and do. Yeah, well, thank you very much. You know, uh, you know, of course, this, I don't want to um, put something into our interview that, that, that makes it less than useful in the future. But as you know, it, as we this week move into October, we're in the final days of an important election in this country that's going right. to define the future. And, um, and I think everyone ought to take that very seriously. Um, and I do want to mention to you, it's not my intention to influence the process, but I will tell you that um, that one of the campaigns has reached out to me that, to consider an appointment to lead one of the major national institutions. Um, and, um, and, you know, that what, what that makes me realize is that, that there are, there are leaders in the country who understand this science and understand the health consequences and social impact that as a part of this election are thinking about what they're going to do in office and are already reaching out to people like me and others to position us to help take on a role serving the nation um, in, in shaping policy at a national level to, on, on these kinds of ideas. We are not that far away from the possibility of a, of a historic and revolutionary change. I, I quoted, I did a talk last week called, um, called Mindfully Positioning in Revolutionary Times. And I was quoting uh, the person who's the, considered to be the author, the father of the modern welfare state in the, U, in the world, in the US too by the name of William Beveridge, who said revolutionary, he said we're in, he, he was talking about World War II in England, he was saying we, that, that we are living in revolutionary times and it requires revolutionary solutions, not patches, not, not band-aids. Um, I agree. And I, that's how I see where we're at. We are, there can be no doubt, and it is out of our control for so many reasons that we are in revolutionary times. Yep. Um, and what yeah. we need in terms of leadership is a recognition of those revolutionary times and the, and the courage to bring revolution to solutions rather than just trying to patch it and keep going. Because what we've done is hurting far too many people and, 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 and increasingly the majority of Americans are at risk in this. And, and um, I, I personally uh, feel called to that. I, I, you know, we, I, not, not called to sustaining the kind of incredible inequality in this country, but trying to return to the true sense of a democracy in this country. And people, if you don't hold your health, your democracy doesn't matter much at all. Right. May as well be in China. Right. Yeah. Nothing you're right. Well, Kevin, I, I, I am really, really pulling for that to happen. And I think yeah. any, anything that, that happens that puts you in a position of being able to make decisions um, in what you know, what you've put your life into is, uh, is the right move. And I think we'll see some amazing change because of that. Um, 
I know you have a, a really busy life and, 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 and many, many things going on. So I won't keep you too much longer, man, but I just want to tell you, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, man. And I, it's been a while since, uh, I've, uh, I've heard your voice and, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's really good uh, to know that uh, you're still out there doing it for us. And, and, uh, and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm glad to know you, man. Well, I hope uh, you can take the recording and make something coherent out of it, out of my, my words, but thank you very much. All right. Are you kidding? I think anybody that's yeah. going to hear it is going to absolutely love it. Yeah. Kevin, thanks, man. I'll, uh, I'll give you a call a little later this week, man, and chat uh, and catch up with some stuff. Great. Thanks so much. T talk to you later, Dustin. Thanks, man. Have a good day.